Goat yoga. Lemur yoga. Metal yoga. Laughing yoga. Beer yoga. Snow yoga. Wine yoga. Tantrum yoga. Tantrum yoga? Tantrum. Eh. Aqua yoga. Paddleboard yoga. Naked yoga. Ooh, careful with those arm balances. Hello, everyone. I'm Thajal. And I'm Jaisal. And this is Yoga is Dead. We're two Indian American yoga teachers navigating the weird and tricky world of yoga. Get ready to hear our personal stories, thoughts, and research on who killed yoga. Grab some chai, a tall, comfortable seat, and let's go. Hey, hey, hey. I'm so excited for this episode. We're talking about some of my favorite monsters on this one. We're asking, did vinyasa kill yoga? We're going to talk all about modern yoga movement and culture, and if and how we think it fits in with the original intention of yoga. But before we dive deep, let's give some background on what we mean by vinyasa and vinyasa yoga. I've heard that vinyasa means to place in a special way. We also describe vinyasa to be a practice where movement is linked with breath, often taught as one movement per one breath. SpokenSanskrit.org defines vinyasa as arrangement. Vinyasa yoga is a system of yoga where poses are linked together in a sequence with smooth-ish transitions and where sequences are usually repeated. It's often called a flow or flow yoga. Smooth-ish, huh? Sounds like you're not buying into it. Well, I think we've all seen some transitions that wouldn't be called smooth by any stretch of the imagination. And that's even if some dancer or gymnast was performing it. True. So many factors need to fall in place for a flow to look as graceful as yoga videos depict. I think it's interesting to note that we have, you and I, somewhat different feelings on vinyasa. Although I enjoy the practice for myself and for others, I still recognize the huge physical limitations of teaching vinyasa to the general population. Well, I initially enjoyed practicing vinyasa, but I realized that the benefits for me were temporary and things like back pain were still lingering after several years of practice. As a teacher, I found the same for my students and I noticed the practice really wasn't fitting the bodies of the people that I was teaching. And going back to one breath per movement, I think that linking movement and breath is a lovely ideal, but I don't think I've ever been to a vinyasa class or have actually been able to do that. Either the flow is too fast to breathe deeply and I end up five poses behind everyone else, or if you're in a non-conforming body like mine, you have trouble doing the movement in the performative way it's usually sequenced and you still end up five poses behind everyone else. I find it frustrating because I initially came to yoga to help me with regulating my breath during movement, but I find that at practice like vinyasa, my attention is always divided between all of these different parts of my body, the challenge of it, and the fast pace, and as a consequence, my breath ends up taking a backseat. Like somehow I'm supposed to fit into a perfect equilateral triangle and down dog, notice all of the parts of my body, and then somehow regulate my breath at the same time. I don't find that very meditative. Okay, okay. Breath control is actually one of my favorite things about vinyasa flow. In some classes, after I've practiced poses and know that I'll be repeating them, I like to play with dropping into my breath to explore rhythmic movement linking to that breath. It's not really about my fullest, deepest breath during flow. It's about my ability to self-regulate using breath as a tool. In Sanskrit, the idea is samavritti, one meaning being same revolution. That type of breath is exploring an inhale that is the same length as an exhale. And then there are certain teachers that, you know, we've all probably had and that I've tried that do not allow enough time for a single breath. And once I experience that, I just don't go back to that class or instructor. But because yoga is becoming more and more like fitness classes, it really boils down to the teacher, their attentiveness, knowledge, and ability to pivot. In my journey to find the right teacher, there are many considerations. A strong emphasis on giving students the space to breathe, providing guidance on how to play with breath or utilize breath control, the awareness to stop a flow to reset and focus on posture, 
Like if everyone seems really confused or just isn't able to execute what was intended, a skilled teacher would be able to modify or deviate from what they had originally planned. The ability to weave philosophy or intention skillfully throughout a class. Someone who cares about community and has excellent, quote, studio side, end quote, manner. And even someone with an interest in social justice issues like inclusivity and representation and acts against appropriation. Now, that's a long and specific list, partly because of those preferences and partly because teaching has made me more discerning. My practice is mostly a home practice. Me too. I think a lot of teachers end up transitioning to a mostly home practice because of the problems we see with group classes and vinyasa culture. And I think a lot of students feel excluded and either they get the impression that yoga isn't for them and they quit or they find private lessons or online classes. Or if they're lucky, they'll find that one non-studio community where they feel really welcomed. According to a 2016 research conducted by the Yoga Alliance and the Yoga Journal in partnership with my former employer, Ipsos, among the top cited reasons that people either don't try yoga or they try it and then they don't continue is because they feel out of place, they feel like their body is not right for yoga, or they find it too challenging for their body. And for me, this brings up a lot of questions around the idea of community. Why aren't we as a yoga industry more committed to cultivating welcoming communities? Oftentimes, you'll find the studio isn't set up with space to get to know one another before and after class, or the classes are packed back to back on the schedule. The teachers might not be receiving pay for time in the studio before and after class, or the teacher is running to the next gig just to make ends meet. And those are all logistical realities of teaching and offering yoga. But there are other reasons which makes finding your sangha or community an important part of having a welcoming, fulfilling yoga practice. And I'm talking about the softer skills of teaching. Does the teacher want to learn about the students? You'll know right away if a teacher isn't interested in engaging with their students. They don't hold space for questions before, during, or after class. They don't try to address students or only gravitate to the students they know. And sometimes those teachers are so focused on giving a killer vinyasa class, it seems that's all that matters. We're worse off trying to teach a cardio yoga class and outcasting folks that can't quite keep up because we're limiting who can access the practice and distorting the real meaning of yoga. What matters in yoga is the connection. And in large part, especially because of our fast-paced, high-tech culture, that connection means community. When I teach, I love to talk to students about their practice, especially the new students or beginner students. This is so important to me because I teach larger group vinyasa classes, and about 98% of people practicing consider themselves beginners or intermediate level. I know new teachers may stay away from students that seem to require a lot of assistance for fear of not knowing the answers to questions. But it's okay to not have all the answers. It's okay to be honest. And in fact, I encourage you not to give a false answer because you don't know the actual answer. I want to call back to episode one here, White Women Killed Yoga. We talked about studio staff learning one another's names, especially for people of color or those that don't have stereotypically simple names. The same logic applies to yoga teachers and their yoga students. Try to learn your students' names, even if you have to ask politely a zillion times. One, it takes the pressure off of you to create and execute a killer yoga class every time because it humanizes you. People will care less for the well-manicured yoga-speaking robot and more for the personable yoga teacher. And if you flub a name, simply ask for their name again. It normalizes asking questions and making mistakes. And two, a personal connection and acknowledgement makes people feel better. Who doesn't enjoy walking into a room and being greeted with a smile and a hello? 
where everybody knows your name. <laughs> but when the culture, either the teacher or space, doesn't create room for conversation or connection, people can walk away feeling less seen or heard than when they entered. My hope is that the yoga studio and practice is a safe space to unload and unpack experiences rather than create new trauma, be it physical or emotional. Speaking of community, I teach this one class at a residential gym that I've been teaching for several years now. And usually it's the group of able-bodied people that rotate in and out of class. They each have strengths and weaknesses and places of flexibility and inflexibility, but generally it's quite easy to find a modification that works for everybody. But recently we've had this 93-year-old woman with a hip replacement come and join us. And the thing I find so incredible is that this group is so accommodating. They've always been accommodating with each other and different abilities, but having this older woman join us really changes the way we practice completely. And of course, it affects my ability to distribute my attention evenly. But this group is amazing because they're happy to make sure that everyone is having a good experience, even if it changes the vibe of the class. But what struck me about this situation is how different it is from other places I've either taught or practiced at where I've witnessed someone get visibly angry because they didn't get their quote-unquote workout, or they didn't sweat enough, or they didn't get to do their favorite super challenging pose. I've also seen instances where the other teacher acted super clicky with a small group of friends, like you mentioned. And I was even in a class with a really, really famous teacher who did the same thing the entire class. She just talked to the people she knew throughout the whole class. Why has so much of yoga become a self-interested group fitness class where we don't really care about other people in the room? And I think in order to answer that, maybe we have to look back a little bit at some of the ways in which we got here. I think it's important to note that tracing a singular linear history of yoga is extremely difficult. When we talk about all the different practices that were considered yoga and the different paths they took, we're talking about something extremely vast. And that can be linked to the Vedas, Tantra, Shaivism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, and even to Sufism. There's purely devotional yoga as exemplified in the story of Mirabai, and there's yoga that's entirely focused on meditation, others with experimental stuff happening physically. And of course, we have the influence of colonialism driving much of these practices underground and influencing the way it reemerged. But the one common thing about yoga up until recently is that it was bound together by shared spiritual beliefs and in service to spiritual outcome. We can't really talk about yoga in the West without anchoring the discussion around Thirumalai Krishnamacharya. He is thought to be the founder or creator of the modern vinyasa practice from back in the 1900s. And the most famous vinyasa sequence, of course, is the sun salutation. Yeah, I don't think we can prove that Krishnamacharya invented the sun salutation or didn't invent the sun salutation just like the rest of the yoga, I think it's difficult to say where it came from. But have you seen that book where Mark Singleton claims that there's an influence of European calisthenics on Surya Namaskar? Yes, I've seen the book. I haven't read it. But there's a whole slew of articles and stuff written about this. I listened to Mark on a BBC4 podcast interview, and it puts me on alert. I'll just say that. There's this white guy reinterpreting a whitewashed version of history to begin with for the School of Oriental and African Studies funded by something called the European Research Council. I think it's good to have healthy skepticism here. You know history is written by the victors. Lest we forget colonization's lasting effects and how academia is mostly white, with 58% of professors being white men. It's hard to address internal prejudice and biases when everyone around you looks and thinks like you, and has a similar background too. 
It creates a false consensus where you overestimate your opinions and beliefs to be the norm. And for those of you who are curious about that, I know Dr. Kiona of How Not to Travel Like a Basic Bitch and Rachel Elizabeth Cargill are both starting to talk about the bias in academia. I agree. I think when it comes to something like a thesis-turned-sensational book, it's good to have some skepticism. At the same time, I'm feeling like, sure, there's probably some influence, but in what capacity? The thing that angers me, though, is people referencing Yoga Body are saying that Krishnamacharya plagiarized on salutations from European calisthenics and Swedish gymnasts, and then turning around and using that as a justification to say, well, yoga isn't even Indian, and there's no such thing as authentic yoga. And my head just freaking explodes at the length some white people will go to to whitewash every trace of the Indianness or South Asianness to just wash away all the spirituality from the practice and make it as convenient for white people as possible. So let's clarify this a little bit. Singleton only remarked that there may have been some influence of European calisthenics. According to Matthew Remsky, who reviewed this book, he writes, Singleton doesn't engage the language of plagiarism, mimicry, or appropriation. And Singleton himself writes, it makes more sense to speak of adaptation, reframing, reinterpretation, and so on, rather than invention, insofar as these terms foreground the ongoing processes of experimentation and bricolage that characterize the recent history of globalized yoga and keeps us away from debates about the genealogies and ultimate origins of particular postures. It is here in this very work of interpretation and assimilation of tradition and modernity that the main interest of this book lies. Yeah, that was a lot. And from what I understand, he acknowledges influences from other parts of Indian culture, including Hindu prayer, where we see full prostration, and the Ashtanga Dandavit Pranam, influences from Islamic prayer and the physical posture that Muslims take during namaz, and even influences from Indian wrestling. Rightly so, too. Though it looks like he may have overlooked the striking similarities between yoga and Bharatanatyam, a form of classical Indian dancing that originates from the same region that Krishnamacharya is from. It sounds like Mark Singleton is acknowledging that trying to ascertain a single origin for yoga or sun salutations would be impossible, impractical, and nonsensical. And for those saying that yoga isn't really authentically Indian because of potential European influences, I would ask this. Is spaghetti not authentically Italian because tomatoes came to Italy from Peru? Or because pasta may have traveled over from Asia and been brought to Europe by the Arabs? Is spaghetti somehow less Italian because Americans combined it with meatballs? Jaisal, stop. You know it's about dinner time right now. <laughs> From Peru to Italy to Europe and now back to India. Let's talk about Swami Vivekananda, who is credited for being the first to speak about yoga in the West in Chicago in 1893. He famously emphasized the philosophical and meditative aspects of yoga. He also revived Patanjali's eight-limb path that begins with the yamas and niyamas. Swami Vivekananda even wrote about Hatha Yoga saying it deals entirely with the physical body, its aim being to make the physical body very strong. We have nothing to do with it here because its practices do not lead to much spiritual growth. But yoga continued evolving. Krishnamacharya, just 25 years younger than Vivekananda, popularized what we know as sun salutations today and other physically focused parts of yoga, which he makes central to what he teaches. The reason he likely did that was to cater to the preferences of those in colonial rule, the dominant colonizing culture, who had outlawed wandering yogis and pretty much any yoga practice that was not a still seated meditation as practiced by Hindus or upper caste people. But it happened that the Maharaj of Mysore at the time was a great patron of indigenous arts and practices, 
and wished to help further Krishnamacharya's work in yoga. With its resurgence, yoga took root among Indian householders and not just the ascetics, the wanderers, swamis, babas, and sadhus who were looking to achieve enlightenment or siddhis, aka special powers, by any means necessary. And these householders gravitated towards the type of yoga presented by Vivekananda and others like him who taught a gentler style, provided a nationalistic message during a time of colonization, and who were inclusive of women, while white people preferred the physically vigorous and male-centric yoga of Krishnamacharya. And today, we see the biggest yoga celebrity in India is Baba Ramdev, and he primarily teaches pranayam and sells his Ayurvedic products. And I just have to say that mentioning him, bringing up his name, doesn't mean that we support him. Neither of us support him. He's really controversial. No, 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 no. (laughs) But I think lots of people in India are taken by him because they find pranayam much more accessible than, say, headstand or shoulder stand. Sadhguru is also popular, and he's known for his philosophical talks. We've quoted him in our Karma Capitalism episode. When Prime Minister Modi does yoga, he's not doing arm balances and deep back bends. He's seated in Sukhasana, practicing pranayama and meditation. The more common Hatha yoga styles of yoga among South Asians include a lunging Surya Namaskar series at the top of the practice, but not throughout. When my cousins in India talk about practicing yoga, they're talking about seated meditation and pranayama practice too. That's something I hope all students of yoga learn at the start that asana postures are practiced in order to prepare the body, mind, and energy for seated meditation, in which the seated posture is recommended to be siddhasana, which translates to accomplished pose, as in be prepared to be accomplished in the practice of sitting, whether seated on the floor, in a chair, or back up against the wall. I remember growing up and the trend in India in the 90s was laughing yoga, where you would gather around and just forcibly laugh. So not a very physically focused practice at all. Let's all try. (laughs) (laughs) we're dorks both of our ashram experiences in india even though they were in different places were not focused on just asan the daily schedule was structured with pranaya meditation tratika yoga nidra philosophy history and bhajan in terms of asan practice the focus was trying one posture for several minutes learn all about it keep trying it for a bit and then move on to the next one in bangalore where i was Sometimes we'd do cardio-like moves to warm up, even running in place. But there was a lot of shavasana or balasana during these full sequences. Sounds nice. In Kerala, where I was, similar story. But instead of running warm-ups, we'd practice up to nine rounds of lunging Surya Namaskar. And that really got the blood pumping. So what we're saying, the yoga rooted in India for Indians, is very different than what Krishnamacharya and his students, Pathabi Joyce and BKS Iyengar, later started practicing to appeal to Westerners. This trinity of teachers brought their styles of yoga to the West, where it became mixed with other lineages, other physical practices, too, like dance, gymnastics, martial arts, and other spiritual practices. And then it becomes rebranded, repackaged, reprocessed, and homogenized into what we know today by several names, like Hatha Yoga, Vinyasa Yoga, Power Yoga, Core, Flow. These practices are all really similar to one another and can basically be lumped together as modern postural yoga. I think some of the big issues we have with modern postural yoga are really rooted in the culture of it. And you said two things that I find essential to understanding this culture. What I'm about to say requires a trigger warning for violence and sexual misconduct, so feel free to skip ahead one minute. First off, you mentioned BKS Iyengar and Patabi Joyce, and as we saw in our Guru's episode, these two figures were extremely abusive in their own ways. 
BKS was an imposing figure who often used violence to drill into his students' heads that there's only one right way to do a pose and one right way to set up for that pose. We referenced that video where he hits his student because she didn't set up a blanket according to his standards. And meanwhile, we have Patabi Joyce, who is also imposing and also asserted the guru knows best complex and used sexual abuse to enforce his stature. But he also created the Ashtanga system, a system in which you have to execute a primary series of postures perfectly before you can begin the next series of postures. So these two architects laid the foundation for a culture where competitiveness and ego-driven athleticism thrive and only the able-bodied feel included. And they ensured a legacy of yoga where the poses reigned supreme as they both asserted there was only one right way to practice, even though they each had their own take on the same asanas. Padavi Joyce and Iyengar would abusively react to students who didn't do it exactly the way had been told. But Iyengar is interesting to think about because in my first teacher training, the asana clinics were taught by an Iyengar teacher. I found the poses to be accessible, not just for me, but also for the pregnant student taking the training with me. My teachers always referred to the Iyengar style as something more inclusive, where you could modify the practice to fit your body and use the props if necessary. And watching that video and hearing accounts of his personality or how other teachers try to mimic his personality and insist that yoga poses look a certain way, those two things seem at odds. There needs to be a distinction between honoring a lineage and copying it to a fault. Yes, I totally agree with that. And the other important thing that you said earlier is that modern postural yoga is heavily influenced by Western dance and gymnastics. And their influences only reinforce these cultural traits we mentioned and add another layer of toxicity in the form of Western body ideals and our obsessions with them. This is something I know we're going to talk about more in depth in our next episode. But here, I just want to mention that they bring their own influences of what, quote unquote, good posture or good alignment should look like. And especially with regards to dance, these ideals are really more about aesthetics rather than what serves someone functionally in the long term. The problem really is that all this focus on the physical part of yoga has meant that yoga has essentially become a fitness class. And yet the training we receive to teach yoga is not adequate to teach a full-on fitness class. So it doesn't match how we actually teach it. And even though vinyasa yoga trainings are very interesting, they really only apply to an exclusive group of able-bodied people. So we've gotten to a place where the overwhelming majority of teachers who get certified to teach modern postural yoga don't yet understand body mechanics and how to break down a sequence to reach all levels of ability or body shape or sizes. We're faced with a culture of folks wanting to achieve perfection, and yet they don't really know how to help students get there. Yeah, we have extremely low education standards as yoga teachers, especially when it comes to understanding movement, which is just ridiculous when you think about what the majority of yoga classes are. And so teachers end up having no idea how to accommodate bigger bodies or any body really that isn't thin, flexible, or able-bodied. Like, I have an extremely large chest, and teachers will tell me to strap my boobs down using a yoga strap. Um, If you have a large chest like me, then you're probably already wearing the most controlling, minimizing, strap-down bra you can find, and there is no way a yoga strap is going to somehow keep your boobs out of your face when you're in plow pose. If you're teaching plow pose or shoulder stand and you have a large chested person like me in the class, you're either going to have to show them how to do plow with their legs on the wall behind them so that their legs aren't all the way down and boobs in the face, or you're just going to have to find a different pose that provides the same benefits that you're looking to have them experience. But it isn't just people with perceived special requirements that our education doesn't accommodate. 
It's also the person that we perceive as fitting into the thin, able-bodied, in-shape category that may lack flexibility or mobility required to adhere to certain shapes. An example of this might be understanding the dozens of reasons a student might have trouble looking the right way in down dog, like you mentioned earlier, or why it might be inappropriate to ask some students to step through from down dog to a lunge with their hands flat on the ground. Exactly. There's a whole movement happening around this in yoga right now, where some teachers are becoming more aware of all the prerequisite joint actions needed to be able to execute certain movements in yoga and are educating their students on how to break down the movement into its composite parts and then building them back up to the desired movement. And this group of teachers is also seeking out the latest in research and scientific understanding around movement and bringing these ideas to yoga. And this, in contrast to the alignment-based yoga that we've been used to for the past couple decades, where the founder of a yoga style, whether Iyengar, Ashtanga, Anusara, or whatever, would teach alignment guidelines for poses that were supposed to keep a student safe and really taught them more like rules rather than guidelines. I've seen it be confusing for some students and teachers to come up against the idea that instead of doing a pose a certain way or what they've been told is the right way, that they need to understand all the options, the pros and cons between these options, and then choose what's best based on that individual's needs, abilities, and their goals. It's like going to a diner and being completely overwhelmed at all the options on the menu. We love food analogies, huh? (laughs) I've seen this be a challenge in teacher trainings as well, when the people leading the trainings haven't updated their education around movement for a decade, or when they cling to something they're guru or their lineage taught them a long, long time ago, but is now outdated. I used to work in a training where the lead teacher would tell everyone that the front knee in a lunge could never go past the ankle and that the knee needed to be stacked over the ankle at all times. But we don't see this restriction anywhere else in fitness. In fact, the knee travels over the ankle all the time when you're going upstairs, squatting, skiing, and a whole host of other activities. And restricting movement in this way and never training the knee to go past the ankle or never training the ankle in this way is actually just setting someone up for a problem down the road. And on the positive side, I'm currently part of a teacher training staff where the lead teacher is super open to learning from teachers who have more current knowledge around movement and exercise science. And she continually updates her curriculum based on what's current. And I love what you were describing about teachers and students being aware of all the options. This is what Francesca Severo calls the yoga of discernment. Creating a class around the principle that there are multiple ways to do poses, even in service to a particular theme, and then teaching in a way that helps students make their own informed choices. This is something I've been gravitating towards in my own teaching, and I find it to be so much more empowering to students, and it increases everyone's mindfulness around the movement, which to me is the ultimate expression of yoga in a movement-based class. But I'm not sure education alone is enough for us to move past the ideas that we absolutely need to push ourselves, sweat a lot, and walk away feeling like we burned a ton of calories to have a good yoga class. It comes down to knowing yourself and your practice and having a skillful teacher. As a student, I know I enjoy the heat building practice that a vinyasa class offers. I enjoy feeling like I'm releasing energy blockages in my body and preparing for long stretches of sitting and meditation. With that, I have to acknowledge that I have the privilege of being able-bodied. And then I know firsthand from practicing with injuries and from teaching to hundreds of diverse students that a fast-paced vinyasa version of yoga isn't inclusive enough. That type of commonly offered yoga was once varied enough to be inclusive, and right now it's just not. Maybe the confusion around vinyasa needing to be a vigorous workout comes from a fanatical practice of tapas, which translates as warmth, heat 
passion, fire. And is typically used to mean anything from discipline to austerities. As householders, when it comes to tapas, we should be asking, is this practice keeping me healthy? In his book, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, author Shyam Ranganathan writes about tapas saying, Many serious practitioners of tapas hurt themselves. Tapas should not harm the body, but yet many yogis end up hurting themselves through excessive practice of tapas. This speaks to an unhealthy obsession with the powers that yoga promises to deliver, such as a certain excellence in tapas. Similarly, the practice of tapas should not lead to decreased mental clarity. However, very serious practitioners of tapas often push their bodies to such an extreme that their minds are undernourished and stressed. Austerities thus become a source of mental turbulence as opposed to mental constraint. Here too, the yogi is distracted by the power of tapas and fails to notice that their minds are suffering. This idea of pushing past even healthy limits fits right in with the Western glorification of athleticism. And I'm not against athleticism, but I'm not sure how it fits in with yoga. I think some of it may be unintentional. Like on the face of things, I think most teachers want students to feel comfortable using props and modifications, but I think it takes a real level of skill to actually teach students to feel comfortable enough to do that without unintentionally reinforcing the idea that we should always push ourselves to fit an ideal. But some of the pushing is intentional, and I do wonder if this is an appropriate mindset for yoga practice, and if vinyasa is just egocentric movement wearing the disguise of yoga. For example, I often teach a vinyasa class in a teacher training where I very intentionally don't cue a single chaturanga. In fact, I inform all the students that the class will be chaturanga free so that they can learn an alternative in case they ever experience an injury or just want to be able to offer vinyasa in another way. And I invite them to save that energy for the other challenging parts of the practice. Inevitably, I'll get at least a couple of trainees who will sneak chaturanga in every chance that they get. And I feel like they deeply believe a vinyasa practice isn't complete without a, that particular pose. And it feels to me like a deep loss for that trainee and their future students. There's also this misguided notion that yoga teachers are bulletproof and don't get injured. But most yoga teachers are walking around with very real pain and are susceptible to injury. There are world-renowned teachers quietly getting hip replacements or major surgery. In 2017, Jill Miller, creator of Yoga Tune-Up, openly wrote about how doing extreme asanas regularly led her to getting a total hip replacement. In 2015, Kino McGregor, known for her Ashtanga acrobatics, posted about a major hip injury. Joyce's obituary is filled with accusations that he led his students towards injury by pushing students beyond their physical and psychological comfort zones in often difficult, even dangerous asanas. And even Krishnamacharya fractured his hip at a late age. The obvious question is, can't all sports, yoga, and physical activities then lead to injuries? Yes, any and all types of physical activity run the risk of causing an injury. But most people who do yoga do it with this false belief that all yoga is therapeutic, physically complete and balanced, and that it can't hurt you. That no matter how you practice asana, it will always keep your body healthy for the span of your lifetime. And that simply isn't true. There are certainly health benefits to vinyasa, but vinyasa isn't a physically complete or balanced practice. It's repetitive in nature, and so that doesn't make it immune to causing repetitive strain injury. And it certainly isn't an appropriate practice for injury recovery or as a substitute for physical therapy or other types of medical attention. Yoga can certainly be therapeutic, but vinyasa is not going to be that therapy in most instances. So the perception around yoga creating immunity from injury is part of the problem, too. I think back to my first TT, 
and it was the first and only time I practiced vinyasa yoga so frequently. I can't say now if I was just following requirements or if I was really eager, but inevitably I injured my right shoulder and ended up in physical therapy for several months. I'm pretty sure my story is not unique. And even though I still practice vinyasa, I can now recognize when I need rest or need to change up the routine. Another part of the problem is that people are using tapas as an excuse to practice asanas addictively, sometimes as a replacement for other addictions. And then they push past pain and the body's warning signs because they believe all is coming, whatever that means. You can practice yoga every day without practicing a single asana. And I think people forget that when they post up hashtag yoga every damn day videos on Instagram. Exactly. And in most yoga classes today, the other limbs of yoga are just sort of shoved in there. Like sometimes there's a Dharma talk that doesn't really have to do with any of the movement part of the class or sometimes it's just an intention at the beginning. But if we're really going to treat yoga as primarily a fitness class, then let's spend the time to understand movement and exercise science. Otherwise, focusing in on the other limbs would be a great alternative as meditation and breathing are already more inclusive than anasana practice. Well, I think we can all work to make asana more inclusive too, but we can't just put the onus on the student. I've had teachers tell me that students already know they don't have to take everything offered, so they don't say all the options. And then I've heard from students after class that they weren't comfortable in practice because they didn't know they could change the pose. Huge circular reference there. From the teacher's perspective, we can work on evolving asana past what we've been taught in our lineages. But I know some teachers are scared to do this because they're not sure if it can still be called yoga, if the shapes don't look how we expect them to look. But asana has always been an evolving practice. We had relatively few asana laid out in early texts, and today we have hundreds, if not thousands, of postures. I think it's a good thing to update asana with the information we have today, just as long as we're respectful of the roots and context of yoga. I agree. My feeling is this. If it brings more mindfulness, then it's yoga. If it brings more distractions or takes away from the fact that it's a spiritually rooted practice that comes from South Asia, then it's not yoga. If I'm not even aware of my breath, my movement, or myself because I'm trying to keep up or there's a goat on me, then it's not yoga. (laughs) Wildly, the idea of goats and other gimmicks being used and still being true to yoga is a hot debate for some. I was asked by the New York Post to opine on a piece about drunk yoga without giving that idea too much publicity because it's a terrible freaking idea. My overall opinion on a yoga class that includes goats, lemurs, beer or whatever is that these gimmicks take away some of the mindfulness of the practice. It's a distraction. The postures are challenging enough, period. We know yoga is an evolving practice, but if you need to change the practice so much to add completely unlikely elements and still add a movement practice, Consider not calling it yoga because it feels really disrespectful and culturally appropriated. If the offering is gimmicky enough, it'll probably still sell. Or if you need it to be a yoga class for whatever reason, have these add-ons before or after but not during the practice. So how can we take action and make yoga a more inclusive space, less competitive, and less performative? How can we make more people feel welcome by the practice while still keeping with the integrity of yoga and not just making it about the gimmicks? We definitely have some ideas. As usual, we'd like to close this episode with tips, this time on how to keep vinyasa alive. For the studios, pay teachers for time. Make sure the teacher's pay rate includes time to mingle with students either before or after class. Encourage a welcoming environment in that way. Offer paid staff meetings where teachers present their recent challenges and wins and can bounce ideas and tips off one another. 
on professional development and continuing education, invite a diverse array of teachers to give workshops, present to staff at meetings, and be in the training programs. Require every teacher in your training program to have up-to-date information about the body and movement. Subsidize or pay your teachers to stay up-to-date. Or provide this information to them and set aside time for discussion around it. Don't pressure your teachers to create classes where the focus is on perfect poses, dance-like sequences, or the best playlist. Instead, focus on the client experience. Actively welcome feedback. Educate the client on the full spectrum of what yoga has to offer and consider making more space for the other parts of yoga. Teachers, learn every student's name as best you can and don't be afraid to ask multiple times. On sequencing, don't be so worried about making the best, most creative flow. Creativity is nice, but remember the people in the room. It's not a choreography. Get comfortable with interrupting that flow to workshop something. Learn strategies for engaging more advanced practitioners while you give attention to those who need it most. Saying you can take child's pose isn't really enough anymore. Let go of the idea that the music and the movement have to perfectly line up. Get crafty. Change up your routine with your knowledge of functional movements and educate your students on why you are doing these movements. On languaging, include trauma-conscious wording. Provide options in a way that doesn't imply that the modification is the lesser or reduced version of the pose. Use exploratory language instead of hard and fast cueing. An example might be, try a pose this way and then try it that way and notice how you feel in each variation. Practice avoiding any gender bias and descriptors. Be careful with hands-on assists. Always, always, always ask for consent every time. And notice why you're doing the hands-on assist to begin with. Notice if it's an adjustment about getting a person into a specific quote-unquote alignment or if it's about helping the student understand something about their own body or if it's just something nice and relaxing. Seek out current movement education, both inside and outside the yoga community. And I know the first thing that comes to mind are expensive trainings, but personally, I started on this journey using free resources like online videos, podcasts, and blog posts and supplemented it with reading books on my own before I ever took a training. I've also been able to take less expensive courses online, so learning doesn't have to include a huge expenditure upfront. Start to get curious about accessibility. Check out our resources for more information on that. Seek out other teachers who don't look like you or have the same abilities as you, and get together for a learn share session. Actively welcome feedback from all your students. Students, be proactive. Introduce yourself to the teacher and talk to them about your intentions what you might be intimidated by before the practice. Choose the right fit. Review the class descriptions before signing up. Make sure the type of practice feels safe for your practice level and personal needs. Email the studio if you have questions, concerns, or any special requests or feedback. Most teachers and studios are glad to accommodate you or point you to the right class if you give them a heads up. Start talking about your practice. The best place to ask questions is in the studio when your teacher is still there and can remember the class you attended. Try to avoid viewing yoga as a replacement to your cardio workout. Instead, use what you learned in yoga, mindfulness, breath control, focus, etc., in all your other workouts. Practice the yoga of discernment. If a posture, teacher, studio doesn't feel like the right fit for you, use your best judgment to stay healthy and well. Just know that there's always an alternative community of practitioners, even though it might take some time to find them. We know this seems like a lot to do, and of course, progress on all these fronts won't happen overnight. We know it's a process. But we hope you start to engage in the dialogue. 
For those of you interested in getting more involved in these conversations live and in person, Dejal and I will be presenting at the Accessible Yoga Conference the weekend of October 11th to 13th in New York. If you use the discount code YOGAISDEAD, all caps, when you register, you'll receive 15% off the registration fee. Now we want to hear from you. Did Vinyasa kill yoga? Let us know what you think. Hit us up on our Instagram handle at yogaisdeadpodcast or email us at yogaisdeadpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, please support this work by subscribing and by becoming a patron. Patrons get exclusive member-only content like extra videos, live conversations, Miss Yoga is Dead stickers and things. You can sign up for as little as $2 per month and the benefits build from there. Check out www.patreon.com backslash yoga is dead podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jaisal. And I'm Thadal. And catch us next time on Yoga is Dead.